This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about some artificial intelligence tools using ChatGPT4, which a company called Casetex, and we're speaking with the founder of Casetex, Pablo Arandando, uh, who's a former litigator, by the way, formerly at Kirkland and Ellis, and I learned just talking to Pablo and preparing for this session, that he was also formerly with our firm, with uh, Quinn Emanuel. So Pablo, tell us a little bit about this uh, very cool technology that you've developed at Case Text to help litigators. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, so uh, the, the large language models have actually been around for about five years. And a couple of years ago, one called GBT3 was released. And when we looked at it, we thought it was cool, but it really wasn't ready for like the kind of work that lawyers do. It wasn't reliable enough. It wasn't nuanced enough. And so um, we uh, we didn't use the earlier models, but then last September, OpenAI approached us and under an NDA showed us GPT-4. And as humans, we're used to sort of linear growth. Things get a little bit better at a time. The nature of these language models is that they jump in big increments, right? And so GBT4 wasn't just a little bit better than GBT3. It was like light years better. And I, I think you told me you got access to that uh, before anyone else in the industry. Yes, that's right. We were very uh, privileged to have access to it because we had been working with earlier language models for you know years before that. So we had sort of been making inroads and uh, applying neural nets and large language models. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you were looking for legal applications for this technology because of your background. That's really what you were focused on. Yeah, Case Text has been 100% focused on trying to make tools to make lawyers better at what they do. Um, and you know, for a lot of that history, it was legal research. As we started to work with these language models, they're very powerful. And so we were asked by our clients to start pointing them not just at case law, but at transcripts, at you know, factual records, right? Of the, sort of the different things that, that a litigator has to interrogate on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when we saw GPT-4, my co-founder Jake and I, we immediately saw that this was you know, a complete game changer. And so we more or less pivoted the entire company. You mean a game, a game changer above GPT-3 even? Yes, exactly. A game changer above anything we had seen before. I mean, it was really that much better than what we had seen. And so we essentially pivoted the entire company to trying to set up the responsible and reliable leveraging of this technology. And that really is important because, as I think most attorneys are aware now, when you don't use these things correctly, very bad things can happen, right? So I think we've all now heard of the chat GPT lawyer who got a bunch of hallucinations, et cetera. But who, who would think that you could, I mean, I just have to, I, you can hardly blame uh, chat GPT three or four for that. What lawyer would think that you could just put in a prompt and then to put the results on number line paper and turn it into a court? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think for us, it's, you know, this thing is not a robot lawyer, as powerful as it is. It's, no, it's not a replacement. And everything we do, we design our product, and we'll get into more detail on that, to allow what I call a, a trust but verify system, right? Where the attorney can always check the work and check the quote and make sure that it's uh, substantiated. And so what we did is we set up the, you know, when you think about it, what does it mean to bring this to law? Well, it needs to be secure, right? Lawyers aren't going to be donating their clients' data so that somebody can build a new model, right? That's just not how lawyers operate. So we had to set up the security, the privacy, the data retention policies. 
And then we had to set up an architecture so that it wasn't hallucinating. And the way you do that is by this uh, technique called retrieval augmented generation, which is a fancy term that basically means having the AI interact with a search engine to pull in real case law and then setting things up so that it only bases its answer on real uh, case law in front of it and then shows its sites and, and supports it. So basically that's what we did was design everything from the ground up to be used for lawyers. We had the privilege of having some great firms um, that we had worked on on earlier projects, um, Cravat, Swain and Moore, Kirkland and Ellis. And um, we started, you know, building out use cases and, you know, validating it. And we're, you know, quickly found that, you know, our faith in it was was rewarded. I mean, it really was able to to do incredible, uh, incredibly useful things uh, across a number of different tasks that that both litigators and transactional lawyers uh, face and, and in-house counsel increasingly. I mean, you mentioned issues about security and confidentiality. I take it that the results of this work as 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 users use the material and generate results, that doesn't then just become fodder that's fed back into the uh, into the database, or does it? No, no, not at all. No, nor could it, right? I mean, then that would be a deal breaker, right? So nothing the attorney does is in any way used to automatically train or uh, you know improve the model. Uh, they're completely divorced from each other. Well, tell us about some of the of the uh, capabilities of the case tech system based on using G GPT-4 for litigation. Right. So let's start with one that was dear to my heart when I was, uh, you know, a junior associate doing litigation, e-discovery. So, you know, traditionally, there's this tension with e-discovery, right? If you want something fast, you're more likely to miss things. And if you want to make sure you catch everything, it'll take longer. What we're seeing when we apply this to e-discovery is not only are you doing in a day what might have taken three weeks in terms of surfacing key documents, but you're also finding things that humans missed. So it's one of these rare moments where both needles are moving in the right direction. And that's pretty rare. Give us some specific examples. I mean, what, what particular e-discovery activity might you have these remarkable results in? Right. Well, I, mean, I can't go into too much detail, obviously, with the clients, but, you know, uh, think high stakes antitrust matters, um, you know, high stake uh, commercial litigation, millions of documents. And you're also now able to ask a new level of query than what we're used to, right? You're able to ask things like, is somebody concealing something in this email? Yeah, I mean, we're used to just searching databases of documents with keywords and, and, and maybe some Boolean logic. That's right. Uh, and that's about it. So how, how is this different? Well, now you can search for, you know, you can put in whole concepts, whole sentences, and it does not matter if the words in the email are completely different than whatever your query was, all right? And that is really hard to overstate how important that is for law, because so much of what we do is trying to find things that are substantively what we care about that may use different words, in fact, often do. And so you're now able to do that. And so, you know, a search like, does this email show somebody afraid to tell his boss something, right? That's a pretty nuanced uh, uh, statement. And it will find instances where the email, somebody's uh, voicing that sort of concern, even if it's in completely different words, sometimes sort of opaque words as well. Um, so it, it is, it's really a new level. It's qualitatively different than anything that we've uh, seen before, even through predictive coding and these earlier techniques, which were really ultimately still basically keyword based. It was just that the computer would be helping you find keywords to kind of index on. Right. But I mean, we're going to be uh, working with data sets, document sets produced by, say, an adversary, mm -hmm. uh, which are generated presumably still by keyword searches. Or are we going to, do you foresee a future where you're going to be able to just query 
the other side's database of documents. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I don't think any uh, a litigator worth the salt would sort of have that open ended here to come hang out in my client's documents. But you raise an interesting point, which is you know for high stakes litigation, you'll litigate over what keywords are used, right? That's something that right. you fight about. And the nature of these language models is that they're they're inscrutable on the back end. You really don't get to know how they work exactly. You can know vaguely how they were created, and you can look at the results. And so what does it mean to have that sort of level of, of litigation about the techniques? And I think it might come down to like, you have to use this model and maybe I will have some insight into what prompts you're using. But by and large now, I think you're going to find that it's much easier to surface relevant uh, documents. Are you saying that we, we might be uh, looking at a world where lawyers, instead of negotiating search terms, they negotiate prompts. Yes, and, and model, right? Like I would, I would want you to use GBT4, not GBT3. To produce me right and then you know and, and you'll run the following prompts against that yeah i think that that would be that that's probably what it would look like uh when you get to that level um of fighting it that's pretty amazing i mean so you could like okay i want you to run did you breach a contract <laughs> what <laughs> were you engaged in fraud was was somebody on your side lying to us yeah you know and you, you, i don't want to overstate things because there's so much hype around this stuff but yeah you can actually say to it I'm a litigator working on this kind of act, cause of action. What kind of emails would I consider hot docs? And it describes <laughs> them. And then you can say, what about scorching hot docs? I mean, you can literally use that word and it will refine it and then say, okay, go find those, right? So right. it is uh, just, um, it, it's hard to, yeah, to overstate it. it. It's, you just have to try it. You have to see it in action, but uh, make no mistake, this is gonna be a new standard of care for uh, interacting with with facts with with documents all right so you're working with document sets your own document sets the other side's document sets you have this new ability to query those sets and sounds like probably get uh hits that you otherwise wouldn't get um i mean well we have the ability also to include in that i mean a lot of cases we have dozens or scores of depositions for example would we be able to integrate that into the into the searches easily? Yeah, this is this is immensely flexible technology. You can point it at contracts, at patents, at depositions, and you know one of the more impressive things I've seen it do. We had one of our beta clients was a Fortune 50 company that said, "Look, there are certain expert witnesses that we just don't like because they're always testifying against us. That's what they live to do." If we gave you expert reports from their earlier litigations and depots from their earlier litigations. Could the AI identify contradictions? Where has this expert said one thing in one case and a different thing in another case and surface that so we could fold that into cross-examination? And that was one where I was like, ah, we'll try that. But, you know, honestly, I don't think that's going to work. And then it worked. And I said, well, I don't think it's going to work twice. <laughs> and it worked twice. Amazing. And so, yeah, not only can you point it at testimony, deposition, things like that, but it can do things like identify contradictions, um, which is, you know, that's kind of at the heart of what litigators do. Now, yeah. will it do it as well as a, a partner at Quinn or a senior associate Quinn? No, right? But will it catch some quickly that you'll say, oh, that's a good one? Absolutely. Okay. Are there any other technologies or features that that you're offering that we should know about? Well, do you want to, if we talk about the transactional side, you know, there's ones we can do there. So due diligence is obviously a very costly um, and manually intensive system. I've got 10,000 contracts and I need to see if any of them have this sort of clause or this sort of nuance, right? So you're able to now, much in the way that sort of you can do doc review, you can point it at that. And with the right prompting, you can now uh, do that as well. 
We had one client, we built something called policy compliance, where they say like, these are the way we do our contracts here. We have certain rules about how we do it, right? The termination notice must be 15 days, something like that. Anytime a new draft comes in, the AI is now scanning the draft and saying, oh, this is how it runs afoul of the way you guys do things. And then it suggests a red line. So, you know, you can imagine it as a litigator, think about a protective order, right? Think about what are the kind of things that you want to see in a protective order for your client. You could have the AI scan whatever they send over opposing counsel and immediately hit like the four flags and then say, you know, here's how you should change it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's some of them. We're just beginning to scratch the surface, though. Mm -hmm. How close are we to the point where we'll be able to get at least uh, first drafts of examinations and cross examinations generated by this technology? So without, I, I think what you'll find is that it's a helpful aid for that. Right now we have a skill that will help you with depot prep, but it's important to say, you know, it gets you only so far, I think, right? I think that, um, you know, the 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 art of cross-examination, there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of deeper chess in that, that I don't think the AI is really going to be able to replicate. I think it might, for junior associates, it might generate a bunch of topics and questions that can kind of help them get going. But I think it's important to stress that as good as this stuff is, it's not at the level of like a fantastic litigator. And that's, I think, especially true for briefing, for summary judgment briefing, right? Persuasive writing of the caliber that, you know, really good attorneys do uh, is not something that I think it just spits out on, you know, the AI spits out. What it can do is help you surface all the relevant fact documents, the testimony, right? It can just be winded your sales. But I, I I really don't think it's going to be at a place where you know you would have it draft for you and then you're just going to sign in, right? But that's now. I mean, this is right. You know, this technology is uh, nine months, six months, or, or less since most of us heard about it. Yeah, uh, I've got to think that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, the tools that exist now are going to seem rudimentary. I mean, it's moving very, very quickly. Uh, and there's some debate in the community about, you know, can we just keep scaling up what we're already doing and just making it bigger and bigger? Will we keep seeing these like amazing jumps with some folks saying, I think you're going to hit a plateau at some point. But to your broader point, absolutely. Uh, this is something where what it's capable of today is not the same as what it's going to be capable of in a year. What 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 are the choke points in terms of the progress and the, and the growth of the, uh, of the technology? Is it the size of the language models, computing power, all the above? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is training data, right? At some point, you run out of publicly available training data to put into it. Um, they are very expensive to train, although, you know, a lot of progress is being made in sort of trying to more efficiently train them. Um, most, I, I think, I'd say most folks think that in order to get like true AI of the sort of like human level intelligence, there'll need to be other breakthroughs on the order of like what the transformers were. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think it's it's a difficult, it's a technical question in terms of what's on the science. And truthfully, there's much better qualified people to speak on to like, you know, the, what are the limits on the science uh, than myself. But um, I know at, at a minimum, getting enough of the training data and getting good training data is one of the limitations. And tra training data in this context, are we talking about legal materials or or not? I mean, like briefs and transcripts and or, or decisions. Right. So it's all of the above, right? So these GPT-4 was trained on a massive corpus that spanned, certainly I'm sure there were a lot of cases in there and letters, merger agreements, et cetera, but also, you know, probably like Reddit comments and novels, right? All sorts of things. So you really just need a huge amount of training data to do it. And so that is larger than any one, uh, you know, corpus. There's another aspect, though. There's something called reinforcement learning from human feedback. 
this is where they teach the model sort of not to swear or not to tell you how to build a Molotov cocktail, right? And that's actually done in a more old fashioned system where humans are sort of looking at three answers and saying, I like this one the best, right? Uh -huh. So that's a different form of training that's important. And part of what makes ChatGPC good is that it's undergone a lot of that. That must be really labor intensive. That must involve a lot of human beings. Yes, I think they, uh, with OpenAI, I think they outsource some of it. Um, we actually had the honor of getting to do a little bit of reinforcement learning for GBT4, uh, getting it to summarize how a case is being relied on in a brief. So we actually had our reference attorneys, you know, looking at early versions of the model and saying, we like this version better than this version as an answer. And then that got folded into the training. So, you know, I, I said, it's like we got to put one little tile in the Alhambra or something like that, right? One little, like, little dot of it. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot that goes into creating these models and um, the open source efforts that are out there, I think are, 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 are to be commended. There's some debate about whether they're really going to catch up with the private sector ones, right? That are just have so much, have so many resources put behind them, right? But um, it's sort of an arms race. So what, what is your business model? Are you basically, you offer a technology which uh, law, law firms or lawyers or clients can take a license to? Uh, and there's nobody who you won't license to. So, I mean, you may, uh, you, 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 there may be adversaries in a case, both of whom are licensees of, of uh, case techs. Oh, yeah, certainly. Now, we have 60 of the AMLA, um 100 at this point, I think. And so, yeah, no, certainly we have firms that are on other sides of each other. Um, yeah, we sell subscriptions, um, generally uh, firm-wide, uh, although especially with new technology like this, you know, we're open to sort of smaller pilots if a firm wants to, to try it on a smaller level. And then, you know, we've sold to thousands of solo attorneys as well. Um, so we're sort of, we run the gamut um, from, uh, you know, large corporations, AMLA firms to, you know, somebody who just hung their shingle, uh, boutiques, um, nonprofits and things like that. Well, it's super impressive, uh, Pablo. Uh very interesting to to hear about. Is there some development that you can see over the horizon that you're particularly looking forward to that you think will be really surprising and useful to litigators? Well, yeah, I think um, so Google is working on a model called Gemini, which is going to combine some of the work they did with um, the, the AI that could play the game of Go, right? And then play chess and there's certain like decision making with the LLMs. So I think Gemini should be a, a great entrant into the field when it's done training. Uh, we're going to see multimodal where, and we're, you know, we're starting to experiment with some of the stuff where it can, the computer can see. So you could upload, say, a patent figure and then say, describe, you know, like where the label should go and things like that. Or um, if you're an employment lawyer, you could upload the social media pictures and say, find me all the places where it contradicts the testimony that he couldn't walk since the accident or whatever it is and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think I'm just most excited to see the development in the tech and then how we as a profession deploy it, because I think that this can do more good than anything I've gotten to work on uh, in the last 10 years, if you do it right. I think this is going to be great for access to justice, right? I think you can take a clinic that can only help 30 people a day, and suddenly they can help 400 a day, right? Um, so I think there's a lot that can be done there. And um, yeah, so I just think it's it's a really exciting time to be in legal tech. That said, we need to do it right. I think we need to protect the ability of law students to learn how to write, you know, including writing from a blank page. I don't think that's something we want to let atrophy. So I think there's also some dangers in terms of if this gets over relied on or misused. But in the right hands with the right kind of training, I think it's going to uh, lawyers are going to think of it as how did anyone practice without this? You know, that's going to be how they look at it.
Is there going to be a, a need for essentially? I, I heard a new term the other day. Somebody told me that they, in their business, they were using ChatGPT and that they had uh, positions for so called prompt engineers. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never heard of this before. I mean, is there going to be a need for lawyers uh, to basically be prompt engineers and understand to get the most out of this technology, what sort of prompts to use to query the, the system? 100%. And, you know, separately from your job being prompt engineer, although absolutely, you know, we're, we're hiring some of those. There's some debate about if the later models are so good, will you need as much prompt engineering? I think that it's going to be with us for a while. But just like associates at firms need to know how to interact with Boolean searching, right? And they need to know how to use a citator. You're going to need to know how to use prompts to go interrogate evidence or case law, how to find the things you're looking for. And so I think it's, I, I would urge firms to start getting reps and start building institutional knowledge. I think you're also going to find that like firms have their own sort of special sauce of prompts that they run to go find the key evidence. And that's an area where um, you could have competitive advantage, right? If you've, right. You know, you've iterated it a lot, you're able to turn around in 24 hours and find all the key docs, whereas another firm that hasn't had as much experience might be, you know, less effective, right, at, at first. I mean, I, I've heard some people express the view that the demand for associates at big law firms is, is basically going to be cut in half and like, five years that what we really need is uh partners and some number of associates who really have this capability of managing this technology whether it's framing prompts or whatever yeah i mean i think again there's a lot of debate on that and there might even be some debate within case text about uh, the outcome on that yeah you know one view um is look just reassign those associates to the kind of things that the ai can't do right and then there you go, you have the same number. Certainly, there's other folks that think, oh, well, we can now do more with less, and so that will affect it. And then it also, you look at the billable hour structure, right, which is, you know, um, the, the, the demise of the billable hour has been predicted before, and it's always been wrong. So I, I'm not going to take a strong stance on that either way. But certainly, you know, some of our Fortune uh, 50 clients are looking at their attorney bills and saying, oh, here's an item that I think the AI could reduce, et cetera. So there'll be some recalibration, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But again, this is something that helps humans. It does not replace them and, and can't stress that enough. Right. Pablo, thank you so much. We've been talking to Pablo Arandando of Case Text, which has some amazing AI tools uh, enabled by ChatGPT4 that were going to be extremely helpful to litigators. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.